Hold me closer, Maxine Fableman. <laughs> I mean, that has a little bit of a ring to it. Welcome back to Lyrics for Lunch, the show that is the seamstress for the band. (laughs) This is a show where we dive, do a deep dive into famous stories behind famous songs or not so famous stories behind famous songs or not so famous stories behind not so famous songs, but stuff that we think you should know uh, and we want to tell you about. I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I am one of your hosts. I am, you know, just living, living the dream. Happy Happy New Year, everyone! And joining me this and every week is um I don't I never know what to say. I feel like we don't need to say all of this. I just I just said my name. Great. Hi. I, <laughs> I forget what you said. What do I say? Your name, Lindsay. Mm-hmm. Great. Let's move on. What are we <laughs> What are we talking about today, Lindsay? We are here today on this glorious New Year's Eve to talk about one of Elton John's most iconic and beloved pieces of music. Crocodile Rock. Close. (laughs) A little song you may have heard called Tiny Dancer. Uh, Yes, indeed. Tell me, Aviv, what's your experience with Tiny Dancer? I worry that I'm going to get yelled at. You won't. I'll I'll allow it. Okay. so You can be free. (laughs) Like most people of my generation, I was introduced intimately to tiny dancer from the movie almost famous where it plays a pivotal role in like reuniting a band that is fighting and i actually tried to emulate that in a movie that i made called the anchorite um where we ourselves do our version of that to a motion six song called 30 lives and i also know that there's like a bit about it from friends uh, where yeah. Joey thinks that it's it's hold me closer, Tony Danza. But the thing that is uniquely me is that I, I well not not really uniquely me, but the story the story that I can share that that you definitely aren't prepared to share is when I was in high school, I had a friend named Amanda who um, said that Tiny Dancer was her favorite song because it was her dad's favorite song, and that was his nickname for her was tiny dancer and whenever it was like on the radio he would call her and like like play the song over the radio for her which i always thought was kind of weird but yeah. uh yeah I, I never i didn't tell her that but <laughs> i was i always felt a little weirded out by that thing it's like dad enough i get it but i but whenever <laughs> i hear that song i associate it with amanda because i was like i'm like oh somewhere amanda's dad is just calling her and it's like being <laughs> a little up weird his phone <laughs> yeah. uh great yeah so yes you brought up almost famous which we are a hundred percent going to talk about today i Ugh. also have the friends clip pre- prepared great i love that but first, let's get some details about the song out of the way. With words by Bernie Taupin and music by Elton John, Tiny Dancer was the opening track on Elton John's fourth album, which is 1971's Madman Across the Water. Which I have on vinyl. Me too. Oh. Now, a quick aside for the uninitiated. Who is this man whose last name I don't know how to pronounce? Bernie Taupin. Are you asking me? Yes. 
Okay, so basically, there's this guy, Reginald Dwight, and this other guy, Bernie Taupin. And Reginald Dwight is really, really good at the piano. And Bernie Taupin is a really, really good lyricist. And together, they make who you think of as Elton John. Correct. So so all of his most famous songs, except for maybe the ones from The Lion King, the lyrics were written by Bernie Taupin. Elton John, the person that you think is Elton John... That goes by the stage name Elton John has never written a lyric in his life, basically. Basically, yes. Um, and so yeah, I, I the 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 I think the easiest way to to explain it is that the two of them are the left and right brain of Elton John. Yes, um, they were both inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1992. They've worked together for more than 50 years. Do you know how they met? Uh, I think I, I, I saw the movie Rocket Man. No, I, I really, couldn't remember that from Rocket Man. Was I really liked, there? I think that he like found one of his lyrics in like in an envelope on a record executive's desk in the movie. I can't really remember. Um, is that, is that right? Well, the record, he says that the man behind the desk gave him the envelope. Um, that might be, yeah, that might be the way it is in the movie too. So they both, Bernie and Reginald, We'll just call him Elton from here on out. They met because they both answered advertisements by Liberty Records. And so when Elton went in and played a song and he told them he can't write lyrics. So then like the man handed Elton John a sealed envelope from Pyle. That was of uh, Bernie's lyrics. submissions, which and, is weird. I think I mean, like as as a musician and a lyricist, but someone who like kind of thinks of himself as a lyricist first. It's so weird. I would never be able to just write like a fucking bomb poem and mail it to somebody and be like this is a hit right well um here because along that vein i think he addresses that in this clip so i'm gonna send you um a clip of elton recalling the story for howard stern i'm going to see elton at his last supposedly last north american show ever in Dodger Stadium next November. I'm very excited. The story I love, you went in on an audition for Liberty Records. You wanted a record contract and you go into audition. I played Jim Reeves. He'll have to go. I played. Put put your sweet lips a little closer to the phone and let's pretend that we're together all alone Tell a man to turn the jukebox way down low And you can tell your friend there with you He'll have to go That's what I played. And you, I was looking for a, a record contract or a writing contract. And then obviously he thought, who needs another Jim Reeves? And, and then there was the pile of lyrics on the table. And he just picked an envelope, gave it to me. I opened it on the train and there it was burning. It could have been any lyric that he gave me, but happenstance was, and that's why my life is so incredible, that it happened to be burning. And it worked out. It could have, I could have been writing with Fred Smudge um, <laughs> and it wouldn't have been Bernie. It's been the longest relationship I've had with anybody, really, except my family. Out of all the craziness went on, there was Bernie. He was there. He was there. He came to the treatment center. He gave him the lyrics. He did this. He did that. He was the thing, the glue that held me together. Even though we weren't together, living together, 
I'm so lucky to have had that kind of a relationship with someone. You know, you don't have to be around someone all the time to be best friends. We're best friends and the distance between us has kept us close. I thought he, I thought Howard asked him, did one of those songs become a hit? And maybe that was definitely from another interview I watched, but he said no. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well then whatever. <laughs> um, Alan John told Jimmy Kimmel in 2016, I just go to the studio and there are the lyrics waiting for me. And I look through them and see which one I want to start with. And then I try and write a song i never know what the lyrics are going to be up front so that is exactly how tiny dancer was made elton john picked up the lyrics on a piece of loose leaf paper and read them and wrote the music to the words mm-hmm. blue jean baby la lady seamstress for the seamstress band. for the band uh tiny dancer was not released as a single in the uk and though it was released as a single in the u.s it only went to number 41 on u.s pop chart at the time okay so like a medium hit yeah and it's a long song it's six minutes and 12 seconds yeah and the radio edits at the time did not help bolster its popularity some of them ended the song after the first chorus so then the song never really has a chance to build to that like climactic hold me closer yeah yeah I don't know if I've ever listened to... I must have listened to the whole six-minute version. Yeah. Is that what they play on the radio now? Yeah. Okay. So then, yes, I have. <laughs> it just doesn't feel like six minutes. No, it doesn't. It goes by. Um, and then it's reported that certain radio stations even banned the song due to the controversial opening lines of the second verse, which is... Jesus weeps out in the streets. Jesus freaks. Jesus freaks out in the streets. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but as, despite this little initial lukewarm takeoff, Tiny Dancer has obviously become a cult classic with serious staying power. Mm-hmm. In the United States, it was certified gold on May 19th, 2005, and platinum on August 19th, 2011, and three times platinum on April 26, 2018. How, why, why would that such a thing have happened? <laughs> exactly. Why do we think that happened? I mean, I think that like like we've seen with other movies, the popularity comes when it's like paired with another really memorable piece of media. So, you know, I know that Almost Famous was like a hit, but maybe not like a mega hit by today's standards. But that is the scene that everyone remembers from the movie. Right. Almost Famous, just like Tiny Dancer, was a sleeper hit. Yeah. So Almost Famous came out on the same weekend as an Exorcist revival. I remember and- that Exorcist revival. <laughs> And so that completely crushed it in the box office. But the more people that started seeing it, more people started loving it. Kate Hudson was nominated for a bunch of awards that year, including Best Supporting Actress. Was that movie nominated for Best Picture? I don't know. You want to look that up? Sure. So it was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, Best Supporting Actress, best two Best Supporting Actresses, one for Kate Hudson, one for Frances McDormand, mm. and Best Editing. Ooh. And it won the best original screenplay. Or it wasn't original screenplay at the time. It was just screenplay. Okay. They didn't split it into original and adapted to later. Well, it's a great screenplay. It is a good screenplay. I have, a, I have a fun theory about Almost Famous that we can talk about later. Great. Because we are going to talk a lot about Almost Famous in a little while. But Jesus. first, why don't we listen to the song and watch the official music video? Official music video. Oh, great. Elton John and YouTube present... So, Lindsay, when is this official music video even from? Uh, This music video is from 2016. And the song came out what year? 
1971. So a long time after, 45 years after the song is released, they finally do a music video. Correct. And after we watch it, I will explain more about that. Shit. <laughs> yes, what do you see? Uh, some woman was transporting a jar of ashes. And what were the jar of ashes dressed up like? The American flag. <laughs> I feel like it was like an American flag Elvis suit. Yeah, sequence. That was an urn. <laughs> yeah. So every every shot so far has been from inside a car, right? This is all about like cars. This may, may as well be a Chevy commercial. Exactly. So there is something very L.A. about this video. It's all shot in L.A. I mean, yeah, but like like eating in your car and like, not that that's unique to L.A., but it feels very L.A.-y. Me to tears. Oh, and now we got this fucker. <laughs> With a snake. Oh, now he's now he's oh that's is that Marilyn Manson? Yes. Why is Marilyn Manson just randomly in this video? He was like friends with somebody in the production company and he agreed to do a cameo and taint Tiny Dancer forever. And so at this point now they're singing the chorus while driving or sitting in their cars, which is like just a direct reference to Almost Famous. Right? Like, it's just trying to recreate that, that, that moment, that feeling. And it, like, does a kind of okay job when it's, like, the, the lady with the ashes. She's so, like, monotone. What do you mean monotone? It's not actually her singing, you know? No, but her face is monotone. Yeah, so I think that, like, this 
this is like a an idea that's good in practice or good in good in theory but then when it came came to practice it's like so we're just really never gonna get out of the cars right it's so boring yeah but i can see someone in the picture and being like cars In 2016, Elton John and Bernie partnered with YouTube and launched a competition to give undiscovered filmmakers a chance to make official music videos for three of their most iconic songs. Mm. One, Benny and the Jets, two, Rocket Man, and three, Tiny Dancer. I know that circus looker. <laughs> that's like a that's like a, 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 a real L.A. Oh, you know, you know the movie Clueless? Yeah. Where she gets mugged? Yeah. She gets right mugged at that, that circus looker. I know. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. Probably because I watched it, probably from us watching it, and you saying, I know the circus liquor. Yeah, right. So they did this competition to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Alton and Bernie's creative partnership. No response. Okay. I, I thought that that was the setup for something. <laughs> Each song required submissions for a different genre of filmmaking. Okay. So this one is Cars. <laughs> this was live action. Rocket Man oh. was animation. And Benny and the Jets was choreography. Okay. Sure. Sure. I liked the Rocket Man one the best. I haven't seen the I haven't seen any of them clearly. <laughs> According to Rolling Stone, three quote established YouTube creators with experience in live action animation and choreography shortlisted submissions and presented their choices to a panel of final judges. From there, John and Toppin selected the three winners and then teamed up with Pulse Films, which is the production company behind Beyonce's Lemonade. Mm-hmm, sure to produce the final versions of the winning submissions. And then the winning filmmakers received $10,000 to put toward their own creative projects. And Max Wayland is the winner behind this tiny dancer video we are watching right now. I mean, it's a thing that sounds good in theory, but in practice, you're like, oh man, a six minute song that's just like people in their cars. Yeah, and it felt so long and it made me think like, is is the radio edit that we listened to now six minutes because this is boring the shit out of me it didn't bore it only bored me in like this after the first chorus but like the second verse 
the Jesus freaks verse is mm-hmm. the is the where I was like, oh, this is kind of lame. But everything else I thought was fine. I think it's for me like it's so underwhelming because the scene from Almost Famous, aside Do, from being clipped thing. in an extremely awkward way. Yeah, I hate that. It serves like perfectly on its own. Yes, I wish I wish that they had a uncut version of that. Yeah. And I've wondered if there was one. Um, there was like a new in May delayed because of COVID at uh, the 25th or 25th anniversary. 20th. Mm, 20th. Tw- <laughs> do math. The 20th anniversary like Blu-ray that came out with extended scenes mm-hmm. and a bunch of really interesting shit. Uh, and I want to get my hands Four, on it. 4K extended cut. I'm looking at it now. Yeah. Um, it's oh man, it's almost three hours. The new the the new cut. But you really need to give the recap of Almost Famous because we're just randomly talking like people know what we're talking about. Yeah. But... Why don't you give us a recap of Almost Famous then? <laughs> I was gonna ask you too. Oh, okay, sure. Almost Famous is about is a movie about William Miller, who's played by Patrick Fugit in his like. Op- first i think first ever role first movie yeah um and he's basically playing a young version of the writer and director cameron crow as like a journalist who is cat basically catfishing everybody no one knows that he's actually 15 years old and he talks his way into getting a rolling stone interview with a fake band called stillwater which is like kind of a they're real in the movie they're real in the movie right but but they're like a composite of like led zeppelin and some other 70s bands and so william 15 years old goes on tour with stillwater um and falls in love with their groupie penny lane she's not a groupie she's a band-aid what's the difference Lindsay? um groupies sleep with rock stars to get close to fame we are here because of the music and then Faruza Balk is like, <laughs> she's the one that changed it all. No more sex. No more exploiting our hearts and our bodies. Just blowjobs, and that's it. There it is. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's it is it is just one of the great movies of the first decade of this century. Really, a masterpiece. And uh, is now time for my theory, my fun theory about it. Sure, because we are just bouncing all over the place. So yeah. let's do the, your theory. I think that, well, so it's not even a theory. It's a fact that this is autobiographical of Cameron Crowe. So is Say Anything. Mm-hmm. And so the, it's fun to watch the these two movies as like sequels of each other. So Which one came first? So I mean, we know which one. Well, maybe we don't. Okay, everyone. Say Anything came out way before Almost Famous. Yeah, but. Which one chronologically? Chronologically, this takes place. Almost Famous takes place in the 70s. William is 15 and goes on tour. He's got an older sister who is kind of also a free spirit, but a little less successful. And then in almost yeah. in he Say Anything, kind of he lives with. Yeah. So we have Lloyd Dobler, who has just come back from a year living in Europe kickboxing and his <laughs> he lives with his sister who's kind of a free spirit but now she's got a kid and he's like trying to reintegrate into high school so it's interesting to watch these two movies back to back and see william and lloyd as two versions of the same character which is of course cameron crow very cool i love yeah, that it's fun i think that almost famous is way better than say anything yeah in general it is all right. Well, now that some of that almost famous stuff is out of the way. Uh, <laughs> so what... <laughs> we were saying, uh, were, were we saying something relevant that we had to go back and do the 
recap for? I would listen to like six hours of interviews with the people that were in this movie and Fugit was saying that like, oh, one of my favorite scenes, like when I saw the at the premiere, I was so upset because one of my favorite scenes, which is like Jason Lee giving this interview, his first ever radio interview, and it's like hilarious and it's so great. And it wasn't even in the movie. And that is on the extended version. Oh, good. I will probably buy this because I really like this movie and just kind of want to live in this world. Yeah, right? Me too. Okay. So, Aviv, what do you think Tiny Dancer is about? Oh, okay. Um, have you seen the Elton John movie, Rocket Man? Yes, I have. So, I might be colored by that a little bit, but I think it's about Bernie Taupin being in love with someone who like worked on the road crew for Elton John's first American tour, seamstress for the band. Yeah. And that's it. That's all I know. That's that was I think that that's just because I watched that movie. Correct. It is widely, I don't know if rumored is the correct word. I mean, it's widely accepted that the song was written about Maxine Fableman, Fableman mm. who was Bernie's first wife. She's a Californian who was married to Bernie from 1971 to 1976. She traveled with the Elton John band during the first U.S. tour, often acting as their personal seamstress when clothes needed mended, mending on tour. Um, and so the timeline is right. You know, Mad Men mm -hmm. Across the Water came out in 1971. They got married in 1971. Yeah, it sounds, sounds, sounds right. According to PeoplePill.com, Maxine Phyllis Feebleman met Bernie Taupin in 1970 when Elton John's drummer, Nigel Olson, needed a hairdryer. I'm, I'm glad that he didn't try to shoehorn her name in there. Yeah. <laughs> Phyllis Fableman. <laughs> yeah, that would be a completely different song. Hold me closer, Maxine Fableman. <laughs> I mean, that has a little bit of a ring to it. So a friend brought a hairdryer to the band's hotel, and the friend also brought Fableman, and the relationship between Fableman and Toppin started to develop that very first night. And then not long afterward, she regularly accompanied uh, Toppin on group events. She showed him around L.A., where he eventually moved. When they got married on March 27th, 1971, Elton John was the best man. And oh, that's nice. And then they got divorced in 1976. Well, shit. <laughs> And after their divorce, Toppin said he remained friends with her, saying, she's very happy now with my bassist. What? <laughs> so the bassist is Kenny Passarelli, and he was Bernie's best friend at the time. Okay. And Fableman indeed, quote unquote, ran off with Toppin's bestie and bassist. And in, then in 1976, this is just like a quick little lyrics for lunch aside, Elton John released a song called Between 17 and 20. This is on the Blue Moves album. Just a casual ode to statutory rape. No big Great. deal. Well, I love that. <laughs> um, so let's check out these lyrics real quick. So this is the, these are the lyrics to Between 17 and 20. Yeah. And this is after she ran off with, what's his name? Tony Passarelli? Kenny. Kenny, Kenny Passarelli is not that much better. No. Uh, so do you want to read these okay. lyrics to me? Dramatic reading. Ready? Dramatically read this to me. I wonder who's sleeping in your sheets tonight. Who's, oh, this is already, this is mean already. <laughs> Whose head rests upon the bed? Could it be a close friend I knew so well? Who seems to be so close to you instead? Close to you instead. <laughs> close to you instead. 
I'm blue tonight. I'm red when I'm mad. I'm green when I'm jealous. Yellow when I'm sad. I guess I cannot have everything. So much has flown between the years when I was 20 and you were 17. So out of choice, I chose rock and roll, but it pushed me to the limit every day. It turned me into a gypsy, kept me away from home, but thereon, there seemed no use for you, for you to stay. If I shower around 3 a.m., it's just to wash away the trace of a love unwanted. Oh, in the times I went astray. The times I went astray. Yikes. So, yeah, I mean, this this is him telling on himself. But but I think in, like, a really interesting way, he, he seems to, to start by blaming her, right? And, like, yeah. like, casting a lot of judgment on her, like, oh, you're sleeping in someone who's bed. And it's like, uh, by the way... I also didn't do I wasn't great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's another song too. I forget the name. I just passed it in my research. That was clearly about her and their breakup in which he seemed to take a lot of responsibility. Actually, He's a good lyricist. I've never read without, without knowing the song. So I've never heard the song. Right. Right. And this is, these are good lyrics. <laughs> so Maxine told the New York post that the first time she heard tiny dancer, she had goosebumps. Uh, this is a Patty Boyd all over again. Right? I knew it was about me, she said. I had been into ballet as a little girl and sewed patches on Elton John's jackets and jeans. Both references to the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Elton was on one side of me and Bernie was on the other. The song was like having your really good friends give you the best gift you could ever receive. I honestly, I, I was like so anti this when we talked about it for Layla and I think it's great now. I think it's, it's really good. <laughs> Maybe because the song is better. Maybe because he's not not actually singing the song. You know, like he he mm-hmm. wrote it for Elton to sing. Mm-hmm. There's like one layer of separation. Yeah, and he's not like yeah because now he's not up there like self-aggrandizing. Yeah, yeah, it's not about him himself. Right? Yeah. I, and and that's never been Bernie's thing anyway, right? He's always like given the spotlight to someone else because he's the poet in the background. Yeah. Okay. So let's check her out. Does she have pretty eyes and a pirate smile? She definitely has a pirate smile. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Yo, yikes. <laughs> that was fun. She looks a little like a young Meryl Streep. Yeah, she does have, maybe it's the haircut, but the she haircut definitely has a Meryl Lee vibe. Or like Helen smile. Hunt. Yeah. <laughs> um, the credits for Tiny Dancer on Mad Men Across the Water album end with the phrase, with love to Maxine. Oh, very cute. So case closed, right? This song is about Maxine. Don't you don't don't do this to me. <laughs> is this song not about Maxine? No, it totally is. But okay. in 2012, Toppin told Rolling Stone, the biggest misconception about the song is that it was written about my first wife. So, shut up, Bernie. <laughs> I've already decided. Don't lie to me. Yeah, the jury, the verdict is done. But no, he he told American songwriter, we came to California in the fall of 1970 and it seemed like sunshine just radiated from the populace. I guess I was trying to capture the spirit of that time encapsulated by the women we met, especially at the closed stores and restaurants and bars all up and down the Sunset Strip. 
There were these free spirits, sexy, all hip huggers and lacy blouses, very ethereal the way they moved. They were just so different from what I'd been used to in England. They had this thing about embroidering your clothes. They wanted to sew patches on your jeans. They'd mother you and sleep with you. It was the perfect Oedipal complex. I mean, don't lie to me, Bernie. <laughs> I think both things are true, right? I think that all yeah. of those things are She's true one of about, those women. about his first wife. Her, yeah. Yeah. right. And I felt like this Oedipal complex thing was super interesting, too, because while I find it slightly gross, it's like perfect for Almost Famous, right? And very honest, right? Once again, like these like mm-hmm. stunted man children wanting to be taken care of as well as like slept with. It like mm-hmm. makes it, it's weird how he just like is brutally honest about himself and his the way at least the way he was, you know, right. And when I heard him speak about those women and and say, you know, they mothered you and slept with you at the same time, I was like, okay, that's super Penny Lane. You know, Penny yes. Lane is mothering every single person on the tour. She's the mother of the band aids. She's taking care of William, who like we said, left high school, tricked everyone. He's 15. He's on the road with a rock band. Um, And at the same time, she's mothering and sleeping with the lead singer or the lead guitarist, Russell, of Stillwater. So Stillwater is an amalgamation of bands and musicians who Cameron Crowe met while working as a music journalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, we already said that he was a correspondent for Rolling Stone at 16, I think. Well, so I said it in the movie. In the movie, he's he was he kind of conned his way to being a correspondent in Rolling Stone, but that is true to real life, right? Yes. Well, he didn't... I don't think it was a con. I mean, he really was corresponding with Lester Bangs and writing... I think the con was that he was older than he said he was. Or he was younger than he said he was. I just I just don't know. I think you're right. I don't think that Rolling Stone knew that he was 15. I don't know. I just saw Licorice Pizza last night, and the main character of that is also 15 and just, like, owns businesses, and it's the kind of the same era. It's, like, 1971. So, like, I don't know. Maybe there was just a lawless time in the <laughs> 70s. Yeah, I don't know. Um, IMDb says that the guitarist Russell Hammond is based on Greg Allman of the Allman Brothers, who Crow went on tour with in 1973. That's actually not true. Mm. Crow says that Russell is based off of Glenn Fry of the Eagles that and Stillwater. That is what I heard. Yeah, yeah. Stillwater is largely based off of what was going on with Glenn Fry and the Eagles at that time. So, a mid-level band struggling with their own limitations in the harsh face of stardom. Uh, except for Stillwater is better than the Eagles. The Eagles suck. <laughs> Whoa. So Penny Hudson's character is taking care of this band, this group of band-aids, teen journalist, all while sleeping with and mothering Stillwater League guitarist. So edible indeed. Billy Crudup is great in that movie, by the way. He is. And it's weird because I feel like he aged so differently than he looked in that movie. It's like sometimes when I look in his eyes, I I can see he's the the same same person. But otherwise, like when I saw... um, where Jugo Bernadette, I did not realize it was him. Oh. Isn't that crazy? Looks, I think he looks the same. Weird. All right. So why are we talking about this song on New Year's? We'll see you all in 1974. <laughs> yes. And I'm quite sure that has nothing to do with New Year's, that he's no, just like just talking the about the next the tour. Next tour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But for some reason, like every Christmas and every New Year's, I think of that. And I think 
We hope you all enjoyed yourselves and we'll see you all again. So let's at least watch that part. Yes. So this is this is the like. Let's set the scene with what's happening. At the onset of YouTube, this is what was going around. So can I do this from memory? Question mark. What? Setting the scene? Yeah. Yeah. So Russell Hammond, the Glenn Fry from the Eagles analog, had just had a huge fight with his band over stealing their spotlight. So he and William run off, go to party, do a bunch of drugs. Russell almost jumps off of a roof into a pool. No, saying, he does. Well, hang on. <laughs> saying <laughs> that he's a golden god. <laughs> and his you can tell Rolling Stone magazine that... <laughs> My last words are, I dig music. I dig music. And then he, you're right. He does jump off the roof and, and I'm on drugs. <laughs> and then, um, you know, cut to the next day when uh, his, his manager, the, uh, the British guy, I can't remember his name, um, picks him up and puts him back on the tour bus. And he's like used up all of his happy chemicals. So he's really, and he doesn't want to go. He's like, I live here now. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and and so they hate each other. They're on the bus, and this song comes on the the PA of the bus, and none of them can resist singing it. Right. So right before they get on the bus, maybe Russell's already even shoved on the bus. The yeah. manager comes back out, and all of the teens who are at this party don't want Russell to go, and he says to them. Ladies and gentlemen, the evening is over. We hope you all enjoyed yourselves, and we'll see you all again in 1974. Good evening! <laughs> I don't remember them cheering. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I have to go home. That was an improv line. You are home. Great. I know the Ask Me Again was also improv. Yeah. Or was him breaking character, right? It took them two days to do this. The boulevard is not that bad.
So this is really interesting from a directorial standpoint because everyone, it's so interesting that everyone has a very specific point of view and emotion when they start singing. So like there, there's a lot of complex things going on in this. Yes. Tell us. So, I mean, we can, we can break it down. Yeah. If you want. Let's. So for the first person who starts singing is the drummer, right? Or he's not the drummer. He's the bassist. I don't know. But he's, he's just like breaking the silence, right? And then you can clearly see Kate Hudson as Penny Lane joining in to like force the norm, <laughs> the normality, right? Yeah. yeah. And then, um, and then the manager starts picking up on it to do, to make it okay, like, this is how we're going to do it. And then finally, it's Russell kind of forgiving himself for what a jackass he acted. And last is Jason Lee, right? Yeah. Quick plug for my own music. I I have a song called Hitchcock Blonde, and the music video is just clips from our favorite movies. And the scene where she tells William he is home, that shot is in the video. It's really good. Can we put it in our show notes? Sure. <laughs> All right. So the next thing I was going to say was, should we unpack everything that's happening in that scene? But we just did that. So oh, Sorry. No, it was great. I was going to ask you to do it. And you did it. Just read my mind. It just is a good, good, I, you know, next time I teach a directing class, I'm going to show that scene because it's not always the words you say. It's incredible. They shot the entire film sequentially. Love that. And when they got to this part, it was just one line in the script that said, like, then they all sing Tiny Dancer on the bus. Uh, okay. <laughs> and then they, once they went to shoot it. I don't love they that. Realized- I, like to, I like to make my scripts director proof. It's the big truck <laughs> theory, right? Like, if I get hit by a big truck, I want someone to read this and understand what I mean by it. Right. But, right. you know, if he's already in it, he's already, whatever, it's fine. <laughs> But they also, they blew it out on the spot. Like he was like, I realized we had this uh, opportunity to really bring out all the emotions. Yeah. And, you know, and then they had to do the, each shot of each person doing their singing part separately. And like, it was yeah. crazy and it took two days. By the way, before we move on from this, this is also like a, a real no-no unless you, so in general, you don't clear the music for your movie until you have the edit done because the person could always say no you know like you would never write a specific song into a movie because there's always the chance that you won't get the song it'll be too expensive or like you know famously like prince didn't want to license his songs to anybody and so they have they had to clear that song specifically before they started shooting which is not a not something that's typically done got it this is from a guy that wrote O.J. Simpson as a prominent character into one of his movies. Yeah, yeah, but I know that that I, but that's un, I know that that's unmakeable. <laughs> um. Yes. Okay. So you're saying that they cleared it with Ellen first. They would clear with whoever owns the publishing rights to Tiny Dancer. So the record label, or if it's Elton himself, or whatever. Like y- y- Edgar Wright did that for like Baby Driver because everything is like also very good but everything is like to that music and people are like lip syncing to it and so it's just like a really unconventional way to 
do it because if you did it the, the conventional way and you shoot the scene and Elton's like, fuck you, then you have lost two days of shooting and you can't, you got to go back and reshoot the scene with a different song. And it's the perfect song. It for is the perfect song. This moment for these people. Uh, this is from American Songwriter about these lyrics. Toppin's lyrics effortlessly bring these women to life by amalgamating them into a single blue jean baby who captures the heart of the narrator. She floats among her surroundings, seemingly unaffected, handling even the rougher aspects of it with a shrug. The boulevard is not that bad. Her charms are never more evident than in the immortal lines about her reaction to her favorite song, the words she knows, the tune she hums. And isn't that right when Penny Lane comes in? No, um, she comes in on the boulevard is not that bad. Yes. But also like there are kind of visual parallels in the whole movie to this song that for some reason I didn't I remembered it incorrectly and I remembered them going that I didn't think it was just on the bus the whole time because i i vividly remember the scene or the shot where penny lane is alone in the in the gym and like Dancing. all of the streamers yeah all the streamers are are there and like that to me that's cat stevens yeah but that is she takes a stand in the auditorium ah yeah yeah so much parallel imagery yeah and so i think you know obviously because this is based on his life he has great care for it but you know, because he was a good music journalist, he understands how to recreate or tr- or kind of transmutate the feeling of that the rock and roll songs give him into like a different medium. Yeah, it's really brilliant. It's a great movie. Um, okay, so there was this comment. I just read that quote from American Songwriter. And then in the comment section, this woman named Patty Larson wrote this. I knew Bernie and Maxine back in the early to mid 70s. Bernie told me and other friends and family that Tiny Dancer was about Maxine. It's really cheap in my memory. So which is it, Bernie? That he is lying like this. Now, just because he's angry at Maxine about their marriage failing. They got married very young, and Bernie had a lot of issues of his own back then. And not surprisingly, Maxine had enough and moved on. Maybe Bernie is still pissed about the alimony he had to pay her. I don't know. But it also disgusts me that... So many so-called journalists take this news story at face value when there's plenty of evidence in the past to prove that Bernie wrote the song about Maxine. I mean, it's not like you can't figure out that the guy might be pissed off at his ex-wife. Also, you might look at the fact that Bernie has been married multiple times and at the age of 69 looks like he's about 80 and you can figure out a few things about Mr. Toppin. Do the math, honey. Yes, it's very angry. Very, very angry. so like... Yeah, hashtag justice for Maxine. So, like, I don't know, man. Like, I think that I think that that's fine. And if and the opposite can be worse sometimes. Like, just look at like Jake Gyllenhaal and the hate mail that he's getting <laughs> ten years after. Like, like we just want the scarf back. But she doesn't want the scarf back. I know she doesn't give a shit. So this is so this is the thing. Like, I think you know. It to to preserve Jake Gyllenhaal's life from getting <laughs> murdered, Taylor should be like, I lied. It, it isn't about Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> should she, though? I think I, she should. I think she could just be like, yo, guys, back off. It's fine. I mean, leave Jake alone. Hashtag leave Jake alone. <laughs> there's a bunch of uh, TikToks of uh, so Jake Gyllenhaal's in a new movie where he plays like a bank robber. 
and there's a bunch of TikToks of people just like scream singing that song at the at the movie screen. No way. Yeah. I thought that was so funny how like he had posted back way before the re-release of Red came out, he had posted a picture of himself like as a kid with glasses and like all the Taylor fans wrote used to be a kid with glasses in a twin size bed right. and then he deleted the post. <laughs> Um, okay, so I found this rare 1971 video of Elton John Shit. talking about how he just picks up the lyrics. So we're going to watch that. There's all lyrics here, and I, you know, I just sift through them. There's one here that I've sort of done the other day called Tiny Dancer, which is about Bernie's girlfriend. Uh, Whoa! <laughs> he just sort of, just sort of felt like I looked through all the lyrics and that was the one I fancied writing, mainly because I, I knew Bernie would like me to do this one because it's about his girlfriend. Reg has to write very fast because he can't sort of, he hasn't got the patience to so call him Reg. hours or yeah. days on something, you know. I mean, that's, that's, that's Reg. Yeah, I mean, you look at it, uh, the words, uh, blue jean baby, LA lady, seamstress of the band, pretty eyed pirate smile, you marry a music man, ballerina. As soon as you get to the word ballerina, you know it's not going to be fast. It's got to be sort of gentle and... Hmm. And, slow, and sort of quite slow so I mean like the way it's written here is, is a verse and it's a chorus or a middle eight and a chorus then another verse and I just sort of ran it through and put two verses together then a middle eight then a chorus and then back to the sort of verse sort of thing it's, you, it's a very it happens very quickly it sounds long but it sort of it, it sort of starts off blue jean baby a different chord than he uses typically and I like it. <laughs> I like it. fast but it's quite heavy then the drums are in well they will be by that time and it's it's super it's, interesting it how he like excavates right he like listens to what the song wants to be yeah which is super interesting yeah it's so like i don't know anyone else who writes like that like just picks up the lyrics no. and then channels what the song but could be i mean and and it seems like he almost has this kinesthesia or synesthesia where like he can hear the music from reading. Yeah. Right? Like, that's the way he translates a thing, which is super, super interesting. Yeah, I loved that. 
Okay, well, the last almost famous bit that we're going to do here is an interview from an interview that Cameron Crowe did with Rolling Stone and the cast to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the film, which was in September of 2020. And this interview is describing filming the Tiny Dancer scene. Gotcha. Okay, Crow. We were already running behind a little bit. Sometimes I felt that we were kind of rogue and we were out there filming and nobody was paying attention to us. But the studio kind of woke up to that. And at one point they were like, rein it in, guys, rein it in. This isn't a lifelong process. Rein it in. Right about that time, we came to the scene that was just two lines in the script, which is, they listen to Tiny Dancer on the bus and sing along as Russell realizes the warmth of the community of his band and crew. And we get there and we start doing it. It was one of those situations where you just felt it. It was like a physical thing when they started singing along and you could feel all the relationships all in that one spot. And Billy is there in the front, just kind of way inside his head. And they're singing, and you just can't help but go, this is the movie. This is everything. And I talked to the... Sorry, do you want to say something? No. Uh, Yeah, but no, go on. (laughs) And I talked to the cinematographer, and and I said, we got to cover everybody singing (laughs) Tiny Dancer. And he's like, did you hear what the studio told you recently? This is going to take two days. And I'm like, but you feel it, right? You feel it. And he goes, I feel it. And I go, is it two days? And he goes, it's two days. Oh, God. (laughs) I'm going, we got to do it. And so we spend two days chasing that feeling. And so much greatness happened out of it. Like, Kate, I don't think you are home was even in the script, right? Wasn't that an improv you were shooting? And then she confirms. And then I've cut some stuff out because this is way too long. Look at Noah Taylor's face, the actor who plays Stillwater's manager, mm-hmm. the one guy who's a punk rocker who hates Tiny Dancer. You can see two days worth of angst in his eyes as he sang along with that song. He hates Tiny Dancer, <laughs> but everyone else was just feeding off the elixir and we're doing shots traveling from one to the other. And it felt a little bit like we were on an exotic journey with that short scene. But man, from the first second we started showing that scene to people, it was the beachhead. What's the beachhead? I don't know. I don't know what oh. that means. It was the thing, you know, it's when you find the point of the whole thing in the corner of the script that you didn't even realize was quite there. Sure. And the amazing thing was that we committed to that song and it was the right song and it wasn't even that famous of a song. And you got to love Elton John because as soon as he saw the movie, he was like, I always loved that song, Tiny Dancer. You understand that song, Tiny Dancer. And he started playing it in his shows and he's never stopped playing it. He gives us credit for it. He's the greatest guy. They, and they everybody <laughs> and everybody came to play in that scene. We did it chronologically, so it was kind of the time in the story that we were also living while making it. So everybody was weary. And I don't know, my eye always goes to Billy in the front. And then I see Fugit. Fugit's pain. And then Kate kind of gives him the map for the future. And everybody just felt so grateful that we had the time to do it. We paid the price later. I'm sure they did. <laughs> so, okay. I'm, I'm a director. And yes. the writer. Yes. And I have the script. And what, what you need to do before you start shooting is you do what's called a breakdown where you have like how, how many scenes you're doing and what days. And it's broken down to eighths of a page. So you don't reduce fractions. A half a page is four eighths of a page. And your AD or your assistant directing team schedules the movie to within an inch of its life so that you're not spending, you're not like burning money. Right. Mm-hmm. And so... If it's two lines in the script, that's like about an eighth of a page. <laughs> and so a movie like this would shoot likely somewhere like three pages a day, maybe four pages a day. 
And so, depending on how much money they had. So, the the sheer insanity. (laughs) I'm trying to put myself in Cameron Crowe's shoes. (laughs) And and seeing, like, you see this one-eighth of a page? (laughs) I need more time. And of course, the cinematographer's like, "Yeah, whatever. I'll I'll cover. I'll I'll do everything because they just mm-hmm. want to shoot, right?" But him going up to like the AD and the producer and being like, "I need more time," and they're like, "What do you need? Like another hour?" <laughs> and he's like, "No, two days." <laughs> and they're like, "Absolutely not." And he's like, "No, no. This is the whole movie." Yeah. And they're like, "This, <laughs> this, this is the whole movie." And he's like, yes, this is the whole movie, which is another reason why I like overwrite scripts, because I like if a thing is important, I I understand that they found it on the day. But if something's important, I'm like, I am showing you how important (laughs) it is by the script real estate. Please give me the time. (laughs) Yeah, but he's right. I mean, he's totally right. Seeing everybody, seeing their relationships and then cut once again. You would not cover something like that. You would do it in maybe two shots, which is like the wide shot of everyone singing and then like a single or or a two shot of Kate and Patrick, right? Because they're your they're your leads. And maybe like over the shoulder of Russell, um, of Billy Crudup. And so he wants every band member, mediums, <laughs> wides, movings. <laughs> Jesus, I as a, if he if I was the producer, I'd be like, absolutely the fuck not, <laughs> and I'd be wrong. Yeah, I think is the would. is the is the moral of the story. Um, okay, so this is Patrick Fugit. Still, if I go in a bar, into a bar or a club where there's a DJ or there's any kind of a jukebox or anything like that, somebody ends up playing Tiny Dancer and just stares at me until I notice. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Kate, kid. <laughs> I know Kate Hudson. I actually feel self conscious every time it comes on. Crewed up. I keep it as my ringtone. Of course he does. <laughs> Fucking of course he does. Um, and then when we, as you mentioned, friends, when you and I first talked about this show, we talked about potentially doing a segment on misheard lyrics. Yes, we did. And because of that, I couldn't not include this friends clip. But I think you're going to be a little surprised. Am I wrong? Have I misremembered the misremembered lyric? You've misremembered something. Let's oh, it's Phoebe, it. isn't it? <laughs> Yeah. Not Joey. Yeah. I'm just looking at her going, oh, no, it is her. <laughs> Way. The most romantic song ever was The Way We Were. No. Uh, see, I, I think the one that Elton John wrote for um, that guy on Who's the Boss. <laughs> Who's the Boss? What song is that, Phoebs? Um, Hold me close, young Tony Danza. <laughs> so what year is the, the, this, the, this episode come out? The one with the Princess Leia fantasy? Okay. Well, it's season three. Season three, episode one. But point being, came out before Almost Famous. That's what I wanted to know. Ah, okay. Mystery solved. It came out before Almost Famous. And so the, the joke is more of an esoteric one than we with our 2021, 2022 eyes are seeing because like to us it's like one of the most famous songs of all time right but to to them it's like this like deep b cut (laughs) which i think makes it funnier it does i agree um and then i wrote in the notes ask me what we are going out on today but then i didn't pick anything great job (laughs) great job as always 
Um, cause I started to, but then I was so underwhelmed. I was listening to like Florence and the machine covers covers tiny dancer. Yeah. And it was just like, I'm asleep. What should we go out on this week? Hitchcock blonde. Uh, come on. Okay, fine. <laughs> uh, okay. So I guess we're going out on my song, um, which is called Yay. Hitchcock blonde. And the, the connection is that, uh, this scene from almost famous is, in the music video the music video is just single shots of our favorite movies kind of strung together in a weird Kuleshov experiment and so you can check it out on our Vimeo we're called Jacob the Horse and the song is called Hitchcock Blonde and uh, we'll link to it in the show notes we'll link to it in the show notes we turn it into something very dirty Uh, so where can people find us on the internet find us on the internet at Lyrics for Lunch at Instagram and Twitter (laughs) great job (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for longer and weirder stuff you can send us an email or at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com I feel like we're missing something mm-hmm. we are <laughs> if you want to support the show go to lyricsforlunch.com and click support the show like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts it's the best way to never miss an episode tell your friends and tune in next week when we'll do this all over again with a new song I think I think I know which one I want to do, but I'm not going to I'm not going to share it with you or the I might share it with you privately. Oh, yeah. not the populace. Okay. Not the populace. You'll have to tune in <laughs> next week. So until next time, I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm Lindsay Tucker. Saying, hold us closer. Hold us closer. Yeah. Tony Danza. And you